0: Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness, and we pray that as your word is now proclaimed, as it is announced and heralded, Lord, I pray that you would do with it as you desire, that you would uh, call dead hearts to life, and Lord, that you would restore those, that you would um, afflict those who need to be afflicted, and Lord, would you comfort those who need your comfort, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Our text this morning is Isaiah chapter 40, and we're going to be reading the first 11 verses. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 1 to 11. Just a little bit of context here. Uh, We actually, last week, got started in what is uh, called the sort of second section of Isaiah. We're in the second, like uh, theologians and biblical scholars are going to call this like the second book of Isaiah. Although we have really one book of Isaiah, it's nicely divided into these different sections. And this, our, our last section started with a story, a wonderful story of Hezekiah. And he was a good king and the Lord used him to do wonderful things for the people Of Israel, particularly the people of Jerusalem. But it ended on a a bad note, as you might recall. Hezekiah got a word of warning from the Lord saying that Jerusalem would be destroyed and taken into captivity, but that it would only happen after Hezekiah's death. And Hezekiah, as the little M Messiah, the lowercase Messiah, it was his responsibility to pray the Lord that that would not happen. But instead he thought, well, it's not going to happen to me. I'm fine. And so he refuses to pray for the salvation of the people of whom he was the head. So you would not expect kind words to follow. Isaiah chapter 39, which prophesies the sacking of Jerusalem and the plundering by the Babylonians. But he does give them a word of comfort. He gives them a word of comfort, a word to follow them into exile. God had prophesied they will go into exile. But he gives them a word before they're even in exile, a word of comfort to follow them there. In fact, it's a word that's going to last longer than their exile. I think you will be able to find with me in Isaiah 40, verse 1 to 11, essentially four cries, the Lord calls the prophet Isaiah to cry four things. Well, first it's one comfort, and then he gives three different cries for Isaiah to give to the people. So you might say it's a sermon with one point, one major point, and then 3 subpoints. You can see these things actually nicely divided. It's nice when a text divides itself like that. But we're going to start with our first one, and that is this. Uh, found in verses 1 to 2, our first point is this. The, great, the greatest comfort is that our sins against our God are forgiven. The greatest comfort is that our sins against our God are forgiven. Let's read this in verses 1 to 2. See if you can see this with me. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Thus far, God's word. I wonder if you can remember a time when you yourself felt greatly comforted, when you perhaps felt great distress or great anxiety or worry, and you were greatly comforted. I can remember one of those times when I was one of my youngest, my earliest memories, is when I was sick, I had a really bad bout of croup. And I remember in the middle of the night, you know, you can't really feel like I can't breathe. And I remember my dad taking me picking me up, carrying me, and we sat on the front step where, we, where I was able to breathe some cool, fresh air. And just being with my dad, I felt that wonderful, wonderful comfort. Perhaps you can remember a time when you felt that you actually comforted someone. One of the greatest gifts of being an uncle or a dad or a mom or a grandma is being able to comfort a little one. When they run to you, and you grab them in your arms, and you're able to make them to stop crying when you comfort them. This is is the feeling that the Lord intends for his people to have with these words. He wants them to know certain things that he has done and things that he has promised, and so be comforted. And this would definitely be a surprise following chapter 39, wouldn't it? Because chapter 39 talks about Israel's great sin and their rejection of him and the coming punishment. Isaiah chapter 39 holds nothing back in the fact that Israel deserves a great punishment. And not only that, great punishment is coming for them. So Zion, Jerusalem is not a natural candidate for a prophecy from the Lord like this. But here they come. Here it comes. Here is comes this comfort. Isaiah, the Lord says... Comfort, comfort my people. He repeats it. Comfort them. Comfort my people. Speak tenderly to my people. Comfort needs content. When you comfort somebody, you really do need to give them some content. Why should I be comforted? He says, speak, speak tenderly to her. What should I tell them? Isaiah would say to the Lord, Tell them that they are my people. Did you see that? Comfort my people, says your God. They are to remember that though they have sinned against God, that they remain God's people. That though they have trashed the covenant of the Lord, he is a good and faithful husband and he has not forgotten the covenant he has made to his bride, to his body, his wife, his church, his people. They are not Pharaoh's people. Remember, he rescued them from Pharaoh's hand when they were in Egypt. But when he rescued them from Pharaoh, he didn't make them no one's people. He he made them his people. This is how he opens the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord, not the God. I am the Lord, your God. A very ancient uh, teaching tool from the, the church historic is the Heidelberg Catechism. And I wonder if some of you would know the first question. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own. But I belong, body and soul, life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Church, your great comfort, the comfort that comforts you in all circumstances, a comfort that will last forever, is that you belong to the Lord. He is not telling Isaiah to say to them, they're there, everything's going to be okay, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. As if you tell somebody who is facing imminent threat and danger, and you're just trying to get them to not be afraid, even though you really have no reason to tell them they shouldn't be afraid. Tell them that I am their God and they are my people. That they belong to me. Not the way that, you, that a, a coin belongs to you, but more than that. The way that your arm belongs to you, the way that your hand belongs to you, your foot or your eye belongs to you. This is what it means to belong to the Lord. Ephesians 5 tells us that this is what it means to belong to Christ. That he sees you as his, as his body. And this is how he sees the church. This is how he sees Zion. He has made covenant promises to her. The kind of covenant promises that marriage was created to be able to, to illustrate as a living parable of this gospel. These covenants that the Lord has made with his people. One flesh, one body. I am yours and you are mine and you will be forever. I count you as mine Not simply as a possession, but as my hand. And that when my hand is in pain, I am in pain. When my foot is in pain, I am in pain. And whatever blessings that I claim to have, they belong to my hand and my foot and my eye and my ear. Remind them that they are mine. Comfort them. I have not forgotten my covenant with them. Then he says, tell them. Tell them that their warfare, tell them that their warfare, her warfare, is ended. And this has a double meaning, as Isaiah's prophecies obviously do. And he, he tells us, he teaches us to say that these things have a, an imminent meaning, and then they have a faraway or a full meaning. And the first is that, that their warfare, that enmity, that, that trouble with Babylon would come to an end. And he sends that word into Babylon, into exile with them, even before the end of exile comes because it is as good as done because he has promised that their exile would last 70 years and it will last last no longer than that. It will come to an end and he's saying it beforehand so they know how sure it is, their enmity, their warfare, their trouble with Babylon. But of course, as you go on, it is clearly talking about more than that. It is talking about their warfare, their enmity with God. That God is against them. Did you notice that? That she is received from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins? Israel's great problem was not simply that Babylon was against her, but that the Lord was against her. And this was the great comfort that God was giving Your enmity with me, your eneminess with me, that's come to an end. Her iniquity is pardoned. Iniquity means sin. And so, what we see here is that God is not giving this comfort to a people that deserved it, He's not giving this comfort to an innocent people that were being cruelly treated by this terrible, wicked empire. You know, it's not like these weak people oppressed by this great, this great em- emperor and that's why he's comforting them. Don't worry, you don't deserve this. That's not what he's saying. He is giving comfort to people who don't deserve it. He's giving, it, he's giving comfort to people who really do deserve this, this punishment. And this is reminding the people of Israel that being born into the nation of Israel doesn't change the fact that you are born an enemy of God. Each one of us are born enemies of God with hearts that have enmity and guilt toward God and they have a hatred toward God. This is what we are inclined to. And God does not say that we are born children of God. Rather, he says we're born children of wrath. And our greatest problem is not that people are against us, but that God naturally Is against us. He has said that he says that from the Lord's hand they have received double from for all their sins. Now, what could that mean? Well, this is not the only piece of scripture. It's certainly not the only piece of scripture that Isaiah speaks. So, the actual uh, Hebrew is the, the the word is this this euphemism where it talks about a folding over. It's what the word double. So it could mean this idea of double, where you take something and you fold over top of it and you have double. Or it could also mean the exact copy. You know, when you take, you have something on a piece of paper and then you put, you fold over that paper and then you can sort of trace over exactly what's there. This exact copy. We know the Lord doesn't give people more punishment than they deserve, We saw this in the law of Moses. He says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You will never receive more punishment from the Lord. No one will. Even those who go to hell will not receive more than what they deserve. And so this is saying that from the Lord's hand, they received the exact measure, the exact copy, the exact punishment that they deserve for their sin. But hold on, exile didn't do that. Exile was not God giving them a punishment for their sins. Animal sacrifice doesn't do that. How is it that the people of God, Zion, the church, how is it that God could say, don't worry, I fully punished all your sin. I'm comforting you with the fact that all your sin has been perfectly punished. How is it that they could have that? How would that be a comfort? (laughs) Don't worry, you're going to get exactly what you deserve. Oh, because the Lord has given her a Messiah. And he would be punished on her behalf as if it were her. Isaiah is soon going to sing so sweetly about this Messiah in Isaiah 53. About he who would come to Israel and receive her punishment. Not at all less than what she deserves, but exactly what she deserves for her sin. So I want you to see here that when the Lord comforts sinners, his comfort is not, you don't deserve it, don't worry about it. That's not what his comfort is. His comfort is, no, don't worry, you feel guilty, you're not guilty. That's not what his comfort is. Nor is his comfort, you are guilty, but I've decided I'm not going to punish sin. That's not what his comfort is. His comfort is that, He will perfectly punish all of our sins, but he will give us a Savior who will receive our sin and our punishment. This is why Paul can say in the book of Romans, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ, who are in him, part of his body, who belong to him. Why? Because they don't don't have a punishment? No. No but because the Lord Jesus, their head, received that punishment instead of them. And so this comfort can comfort in life and death. This is the kind of comfort that works when you are facing great pain and sorrow. Maybe even persecution. Maybe a sickness. Maybe it's poverty or loneliness. I am not my own, and Christ paid for my sins. I am not an enemy of God, but I am part of Christ's body. Dear church, that can comfort you in any and every circumstance. But I want you to realize that this is a comfort for sinners. Sometimes we would be inclined to think that the comforts in Scripture are for those who are maybe suffering because of other people's sin. And that is certainly true. But it's not just that. The comforts in Scripture are also for those who are suffering because of their own sin. Because this is exactly what Zion was experiencing in Babylon when these words came to her. Comfort my people. Comfort, comfort. Comfort my people. Tell her that her warfare with me is over. And that, her sins are covered. You will face trial and suffering, even though you are a forgiven child of God. And the promise is not that you will not receive, you will not have trial and suffering in this life. In fact, Christ promises in this life, you will have trouble. But dear friends, think of the privilege Of living, even a life that includes suffering, as a child of God. Living a life that includes suffering, but doing so as an adopted, forgiven, beloved child of God is sweeter than if you could live a life without suffering, but know that God was your enemy. There is nothing sweeter than to belong to Christ and to have your sins forgiven. So, dear friends, when you are comforting yourself in your guilt, don't be tempted to think, oh, it, my, my sin is not that bad. That's not a good comfort. Your conscience will come back to you and remind you, actually, you're wrong. It is. You are guilty. Don't let that be the way you comfort yourself. Your comfort is, yes, I'm a sinner. And yes, I have guilt. But I belong to the Lord and he paid for it. And he could no sooner forget about me than he could forget about his own body. Maybe comforting yourself in hardship that has nothing really to do with sin, but maybe it is the sorrow of a sickness or the death of a loved one or maybe of uh, a threat of financial ruin or something like that or threat of war, all of these things Dear friends, in those situations, this also needs to be your comfort. Any other way that you comfort yourself, by taking another look at your bank account, okay, I'm fine, or your investments, or the stock market, or thinking about, no, no look, I, I, I lost somebody I love, but look, I have eight other people. It's fine to thank God for those blessings, but dear friends, do not comfort yourself with them, because each and every one of those things will fade, and it will prove to be unsatisfying and then when one of those things is lost you will be in the depths of despair train yourself to comfort yourself with these words also the same thing is true when comforting others when you comfort others make this the core of your comfort for them not don't worry you'll get you'll get better grades next time don't worry i'm sure the next uh, doctor's test will be better You can pray that it is, but when you say don't worry to a child or another believer, remind them that those who belong to the Lord belong to him, and that their sins are covered, and they are no longer enemies of God, but they are children and beloved of that, because that is something nobody can rob them of. Somebody can take your money, or your grades, or your your wealth, or your health, or your popularity, or your friends. No one can take your status as part of the body of Christ and your forgiveness that he paid for. Let's look at our second point. It's as if Isaiah needs more content to this comfort. Our second point is this. The good news of the Lord's coming will come to the wilderness. Let's see this in 3 to 5. Again, it starts with this, uh, this command to cry. A voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Thus far God's word. Between Israel and Babylon, there's a wilderness. A wilderness that you could go right through but you'd probably die. You're probably not going to make that journey. You had to sort of go around it and it made the trip a lot longer. So there's this wilderness that is between them and the promised land when they're in Babylon. There was also wilderness between them when they were in Egypt and the promised land. And so when they were in exile, there was this this idea that I, that they were in fact actually in the wilderness because they were away from their land and they were being oppressed, they were being enslaved, and they were suffering. So in the the word of God, often when the people of of God are talked about being in exile or being in the wilderness, it's talked about them in a place of suffering. And so Isaiah is saying, you will receive words of comfort while you are suffering. These will be words that come in and through the wilderness. This is not just comfort for for people who are doing well. Everything's going well, but don't worry, it's even going to get better. This is for people who are suffering. So the interim fulfillment, there's an ultimate fulfillment, and there, an interim or a temporary fulfillment is that God is going to command the king of Babylon, or Cyrus, to, make, to send Zion back to Zion, to send Judah back to Judah, to send Israel back to Israel. And that would be the end of exile, and they would return to their land. But there's an, other, there's an ultimate fulfillment there. And we see that ultimate fulfillment with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who came not to end our eneminess with Babylon, but to deal with the problem of our eneminess with God. That our sins against God would be paid for, that we would be reconciled to God because of our sins Who announced the coming of the Lord Jesus? Who was it? John the Baptist. Where was John the Baptist's ministry? Where was he? He was eating locusts and honey. Where was he? Proclaiming the coming of the Messiah from the wilderness. We see this in Luke chapter 3. In the wilderness, Prepare the voice in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord has come. In a sense, the Lord had come when Israel was in Babylon. He had come to Babylon to rescue them and take them back, right? He had taken them. He he truly actually came to rescue them from Babylon. But even more so, in the time of John the Baptist, the Lord had actually come. He had come in the flesh. He had become a human to save them, to be their savior, to be their sin-bearing savior. So in a, in a spiritual sense, you could say the Lord had come to Babylon to rescue his people from Babylon, but not just in a spiritual sense, but in the flesh and blood sense, the Lord had come when the Lord Jesus Christ came to rescue his people from their sin. He would come and he would save to bear the sin of his people, the exact copy, the fold the exact copy of their sin, the exact copy of their punishment, he would come and take. You've been comforted by words that have failed. You've been tricked into believing a comfort that was not true before. Somebody has given you false words of comfort. You know, you went for medical tests and someone said, I'm sure, don't worry about it. I'm sure everything will be fine. And those tests came back worse than you thought. Why is it that you should be comforted by these words? Why should you be comforted by these words of comfort when many other comforts, many other words of comfort have failed? You have gotten yourself to stop worrying before, using things that weren't this, and it turned out maybe you should have been worried about those things. Why is this different? Why can we trust these words of comfort? The Lord answers that question in the next point. The good news can be trusted because it endures forever. Let's look at verses six to eight. Verses six to eight. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our god will stand forever all flesh says god is grass that means all people are like grass grass that's really fine and healthy one day but then you have a, a hot sun and a little bit of a, a bit of a drought and it's gone Flowers that one day are blooming and then the next day look like they never were blooming at all. All flesh is grass. Your life is in the hands of the Lord. Did you see that? The grass withers, the flower fades. When does the grass wither and the flower fades? When the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Your life is but a vapor. Everything that you have, your heartbeat, your blood cells, your brain waves, your toes, your hair, your car, your house, your job, your grades, your family, all of these things are so temporary. And they are only there because the Lord has given them. They are in his hands. They, are at, they exist because of his pleasure. Colossians say that they exist by the word of his power. He upholds these things. It is foolish to trust in these comforts because they are only there temporarily and they are there only because God gives them. They're like grass and flowers. You will one day die and meet the Lord. Your life will be taken from you. The Lord will take it just, be, just the same way that he gave it. The Lord gives life and he is the one who takes it away. And in that moment when your life is taken you will be as naked as you were on the day that you were born. Naked you came into the world and naked you will leave. You will have nothing. All the things that you trusted in for life and health, all of those things will be gone to you. But the word of the Lord is not like the words of men. The comforts of the Lord are not like the comforts of men. The word of the Lord endures forever. What he says Always comes to pass. Dear friends, we can talk about the attributes of God and how He is all powerful and there's nothing that He can't do. It's not true, though. There is something He can't do. He cannot lie. We have a blessing of having a number of weddings this this year. And when we look at those, Those couples, the bride and the groom, standing in front of the church and before God, making oaths to each other, swearing oaths to each other. We hope and we pray that that groom will keep his oath. That he swears that receiving this woman as his own body, as his own flesh, he will never leave her or forsake her. He will always count her life as more valuable than his. He will be faithful to her. He will never forsake her because she's not beautiful enough or not helpful enough or not kind enough. He will never do that. We hope he will keep his oath. We pray that he will. God's strengthening him. He will. But dear friends, this is a mere parable of the covenant love between Christ and his church, the bride. The oaths that he swore to Zion, those who trust in his gospel. We do not hope that he keeps his oath. He will. He is God his word endures forever. His word created the universe by the word. He spoke the universe into being. Every promise he has made has ever, he's, he's made them, he's come true. And to make it even sure, he, he consistently, in the book of Isaiah, this is a masterclass. he keeps making promises that will be kept in the short term. Five years maybe two years and then and then some 70 years so that as these promises miraculously take place we know that the ultimate promise that he makes he swears to his church the bride we know that will happen because he's never once broken a promise he can't he is the lord the grass withers and the flower fades your life will be taken and all the things that you have trusted in all those things that you've comforted yourself with. Maybe it is good entertainment and you've just comforted yourself when you're I'm just going to entertain myself. Maybe it's bad entertainment. Maybe it's sin or drugs or, or drinking to excess. Maybe it's hoarding money. All these ways that you have comforted yourself. Well, maybe I have a good family. All those things will fail one day. But you are no fool for trusting in the promises of God because the grass withers and the flower fades, and you will wither and fade. I'm sorry to tell you. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And so when the return from the exiles from Babylon happened, 70 years, right on time. And when the Messiah came, right on time, just like, just like Daniel prophesied when the Messiah would come, You can be sure that the Lord Jesus will return. You can be confident that this husband will keep his oath to his bride. Our fourth point is this. The good news of the fierce and tender shepherd should be proclaimed from the mountaintops. The good news of the fierce and tender shepherd should be proclaimed from the mountaintops. We'll see this in 9 to 11. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Thus far, God's word. The comforting news from Zion is to be heralded from a high mountain by Zion, which is kind of weird because Zion's actually a mountain. Zion, go up to Zion, go up to a high mountain. And he's, of course, Zion now here is representing the people of God, the church of all times and places, the bride of God, the people who are in covenant with God by his promises and trusting in his promises. By faith, you are part of Zion. By faith, you are part of his bride. By faith, you are a child of Abraham. By faith, you belong to him. Go up to a high mountain and proclaim the good News. Did you see the words good news there? What's that in Greek? Gospel. Well, kind of. The English version of Greek, gospel. Good news. That's what it means. But what is the good news? What is the good news? Behold your God. What's the good news? Behold your God. God is the gospel. God is the gospel, not, there's not, the good news is not, here's a way to be saved to get to God. No, God himself is the gospel. We see this in two ways. First of all, the good news is that you get God. You get reconciled to God. You were an enemy of God and now you're no longer an enemy of God. and not, You're not just neutral, you are now his beloved child. You belong to him, you belong to him the way a hand belongs to a body. The good news is God. God is the gospel. Friends, if you think that the good news is merely just forgiveness of sins, so that your sins are not just punished, you are not just even half right, you are totally wrong if you forget the next part. Why is it good that your sins are forgiven? Because then you can belong to God. You can be his child. God is the gospel, God is the treasure if you believe that you have been saved because you trusted in Jesus to forgive you of your sins, but have had no desire to actually have be forgiven so that you can have God as your treasure, you're not saved. The good news of salvation is behold, you're God. Satan would love to be forgiven. But I'll tell you one thing he would hate more than anything is to belong to God. But those who have faith, real faith in Christ, love that they belong to God. Knowing that they belong to God is a comfort to them. Not something that is repulsive, but something that is beautiful. But God is also the gospel because he's the one who works it. We saw this. It says that his arm, he works salvation. He himself does it. He's not waiting for his people to get saved. He's not waiting for his people to save themselves. He's not waiting for his people, first of all, to get out of Babylon. They couldn't. And he's not certainly waiting for them to pay for their own sins. He himself saves. And this is why it was so significant when John the Baptist said, this is the Messiah. God himself has come to save. Not just a representative of God, not a messenger of God, but God himself Has come. Did you notice the two qualities about God, about Christ as our Savior, that are elevated here so that we would be comforted? The first one is that He is mighty. Did you see that? He is mighty. I'm sure there's things that you would have wanted to do to help someone, to comfort somebody. Your friend tells you, I just received news that I have cancer. And you would love to be able to snap your fingers and remove that cancer. You wish you would have that power. The Lord is almighty. He is mighty. Christ is a mighty, mighty shepherd. He rules with a powerful arm. There is nothing he can't do. This is a terrible thing. If you are an enemy of his... This is no good news if you are an enemy of his. This makes your terror increased. To have an enemy who is all-powerful. He rules with a strong arm. He is a terror to his enemies. But what else? What other characteristic do we learn about Christ, the shepherd, from this passage? We have two of his characteristics are meant to comfort us. First, he is mighty. Did you see what the next one is? He's tender. See this illustration of how tender he is? Imagine a shepherd with a large flock of sheep, and he's leading them in a direction from point A to point B. And now, amongst this flock of sheep, you're going to have some really weak sheep. You might have some lambs that are a couple of hours old. You might have some ewes who are, are pregnant, about to give birth. You might have some ewes that are actually just have just given birth and they're exhausted, and maybe they're, they're nursing their little lambs. How does he treat these? He's tender. He's gentle. He's patient. He's kind. Well, what if they can't walk? Does he insist that they keep going anyways? Yes, he does. But how does he make sure they keep going when they can't? He picks them up and he carries them. He is strong. But he is tender. Of the group of people in this congregation... How many of us fall outside of the category of the sheep, let's just say the actual saved people in this congregation. How many, there's a category of strong sheep and weak sheep that he needs to be very tender and careful with. How many are in this, the first category of strong sheep that he doesn't need to be tender with? A big fat zero. If you humble yourself, and realize you don't just need help from a shepherd. You need the kind of shepherd who would carry you. And that you believe that Christ is that shepherd and he died for your sins, for the, sheep of, uh, the sins of his sheep. This is what saving faith means. This means he is a safe place to go when you have been cruelly treated by others. Maybe others in authority have used their authority to hurt you. And that is a story that plays over and over and over again outside the church and sadly inside the church as well. That means that Christ does not give up his authority over you. He doesn't pretend to just be one of the sheep. No, he remains the authority. He remains the shepherd. But yet he is tender. Isaiah will very soon, in just a couple of chapters, talk about how he is so tender is he will not, he wouldn't even crush a bruised reed. You know, like a, a reed coming in the marsh, where sometimes they're kind of strong, but as soon, as soon as they're bruised even a little bit, they, they're very floppy, they have no strength at all. He says he will not even crush a bruised reed or a smoldering wick, wick that has just a little bit of an ember on it. He's not even going to blow that out. He is a very gentle shepherd. That means you can go to him when you have been hurt. But others don't care and they're not careful with you. It also means you can go to him with your guilt. You come to him humbly with your guilt, not arrogantly. God, forgive me because I've done my best. Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. He's not going to turn you away, you won't regret it. He's not going to shove it in your face. He will deal with you tenderly and gently the way a good shepherd would deal with a brand new lamb. But he is a fierce shepherd. And his tenderness toward the sheep is a warning to anybody who would come against them. To any false shepherd who would come in and try to lead them and add rules to his sheep. He is a fierce shepherd. And you see how he treats those who come against his church either as official enemies or as false shepherds who come in and think, oh, I'm just going to lead them in this direction. I'm going to add extra rules or expectations. Brother Roger read for us about uh, in, in Revelation 22, which actually quotes these verses, didn't it? Behold, I am coming soon with my reward and my recompense with me. He comes to judge the living and the dead. He comes to punish people for their sin as a fierce shepherd. Or, For those for whom he has already died, those sins who've already been paid for, his sheep, his Jerusalem, his Zion, his church, his body, his bride, he comes to welcome them and share in his blessing. The Lord is coming soon, Revelation reminds us. Your life will be put to an end at one way or another. Either the Lord returns or you will die, and you will stand before him face to face. And your options are standing before him as a fierce shepherd who punishes people for their sin, or a tender shepherd who is punished instead. So repent and believe in the gospel. Humble yourself before Christ. Trust in him. Trust in him to pay for your sins, but also to reconcile you to God. Trust in him to give you God. And he will not turn you away. Come to him with your hurt. You will not regret it. He is a tender shepherd. He will insist that you are righteous. He will insist you do not walk back to Babylon or back to Egypt. He will insist on this. But he will be patient, and he will carry you in the right direction, in the way of holiness, in the way of righteousness. He is a good shepherd. And to symbolize, to make this promise known kind of like a wedding ring, he has given us two sacraments, baptism, which we already celebrated, and the Lord's Supper. This is the public, uh, the 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 Lord's promise to his bride in a visible way. When we watch baptism, we are watching as a groom makes an oath, wedding vows to a bride. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are watching as that groom continually renews his vows every single time we celebrate Lord's Supper. Your sin is paid for, I covered it with my blood. Your body, in, your, in my body, I, I took the curse for your sin. Every single time, he reminds us of the sacrifice that he made for our sin, and also the results of that. It is not that we are just forgiven, but that we are now made children of God, who have a place at the family table of God. So this is God's visible promise for all who have faith in the gospel not faith that they go to church so they're good not faith that, that they've done a good enough job being a christian no this is god's promise to those who trust in jesus as their savior as the one who took their punishment and rose from the dead and he is promising with the blood or with the, with the cup that his blood has paid for your sin and with the bread that it was his body that took your curse I'm going to ask that you would join with me in prayer, and we'll ask the elders to come forward and help serve the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, we thank you for your rich promises, uh, which which promises um, we get a living parable of whenever somebody gets married. We are grateful for the oaths that you have sworn to Zion, to your church, your bride, and Lord, we are grateful that we are made yours, not by earning it, but by simply by trusting those promises. So Lord, I pray that you would use the celebration of Lord's Supper right now, that you would use this to strengthen our faith in your promises. So Lord, I pray that we would celebrate this in a way that honors you, that we would celebrate it in a way that we repent of sin. And we trust in the Lord Jesus for our forgiveness and also for our holiness. I pray that you would give us that gift in Jesus' name.